Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Monday? I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. We've got our usual Sunday evening chat with former Andy Kennedy staffer Bracken Ray on a two-in-one week for Ole Miss, whose young core is starting to find a bit find their way a bit in SEC basketball, but we did a lot of different stuff with the SEC Big 12 Challenge and just college hoops at a hole and hit some uh, Ole Miss stuff at the end as the Rebels go 2-1 and one last week with they lost to Arkansas, sandwiched in between wins over Florida and Kansas State uh, in a three-game home scan. Ole Miss on the road this week, two games at Florida and at LSU. I think I said that in reverse order, at Florida – excuse me, at LSU Tuesday night, at Florida on Saturday – so we previewed that a little bit as well. So good conversation. Then we'll do some uh, NFL football championship weekend thoughts at the top. Before we get to that, though, I want to remind you the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sportsbase. Who is Skybox Sportsbase? Glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox matrix interval and advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. You need to check these guys out. One in college basketball yesterday. They also hit the Bengals and I believe the under for championship weekend. They are testing out some NBA models that appear to be hitting at around 61%, which I would say you could take that to the bank every time. You've got NASCAR coming up, which is uh, one of their niche bread and butters, uh, bread and butter um, sports, I would say. They uh, went 30, almost 39 units uh plus 39 units, I should say, in 2021. They're going to have a NASCAR package coming up. They're going to start teasing that promo. I believe the package drops at the end of February, but if you use the promo code NASCAR, you'll get 30% off. Uh, I'm going to have the NASCAR guy on here in the next couple of weeks as I try to learn a new sport. Had a really fun time doing that last summer. But check these guys out. They're going to have a picks package that fit your price range, whether that's month-long, season-long, no matter your sport. You can do all sports, sports-centric, and try them out for a week, or even do a daily pass. If you use the promo code RIPPY, you get 20% off any purchase. But if you're in the wagering game, you need to use Skybox. They're going to consistently lead you to profit more than your own knowledge and your own brain. That's just a guarantee. Uh, you don't want the bookie texting you on a Monday asking where his uh, scratch is. You want to be texting him wondering where your uh, beer money for that weekend is coming from. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. They're the absolute best in the business. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger, Go see Greg, Rippy Wright subscribers. That's rippywrights.substack.com. You get a free newsletter from me three to five times a week once you type in your email and discounted meats. Right now for Ole Miss, for Rippy Wright subscribers, you get a 16-ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. Just go show Greg proof of subscription, and he'll get you set up. Then go find your own favorites at LB's. They have all kinds of delicious Seafood, all kinds of cuts, crab stuff, mushrooms is a nice side dish. I like the uh, ribeye sausage filet burgers are always a great way to go. Check them out. Oxford is so lucky to have a place like LB's. He wants to make your grilling experience great. You need to check them out. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. All right, before we get to their conversation with Bracken Ray, just had a couple of NFL thoughts off the top after a couple of really awesome championship games. They talk about the playoffs delivering. You had a snoozer on wild card weekend, which is pretty rare. The last couple wild card weekends, at least from my memory, last three to four years, have been awesome. A lot of underdogs winning a lot of tight games. You had a snoozer that uh, this year, and then you got 
rewarded with probably the one of the greatest divisional weekends of all time and then two great competitive games yesterday. I don't know if you'd call Rams Niners great per se, but it was really good, really fun competitive game. I guess we'll start with the first game. That was one of the more surprising results I think I've seen in the NFL over the really the last time. I would say I started watching the NFL religiously about seven, eight years ago. Um And that was one of the more shocking results I've seen since I've gotten really into the NFL. And I don't mean that from the standpoint of I didn't think Cincinnati and Burrow had a chance to go in there and win that game. Just with the way it was trending in the first half, Kansas City scored on each of its first three drives and really was getting, like, didn't really have much resistance put up. 92 yards of offense in the first half in 21 points and the four on four drives. And if you remember the fourth drive, Cincinnati finally scored a touchdown to make it 21 to 10. And then you give it back to the chiefs with, I guess about a minute and five left And the chiefs went 82 yards, 83 yards down the field in a minute. They get stopped by at the goal line right before halftime. And really what was probably the most consequential play uh, of the game, I thought, you know, aside from, the of the obvious the overtime interception the field goal but in terms of that continuing to remain a game and it not devolving into a route I thought that stop at the goal line by uh, former New Orleans Saint fan favorite Eli Apple on Tyreek Hill was as consequential of a play as there was in that game so you got 21 points on four drives in the last drive you get stopped basically by the clock um, after getting it all the way down to the one-yard line. So it's 21-10. Bengals had to feel pretty good about it just being down 11. But I'm sitting there thinking, the Chiefs get the ball right after halftime. Like, they haven't shown any ability to stop them. And, you know, halftime adjustments, all of that. Can you get one stop coming out, make it 21-17, and just see what happens from there and see if you can coax them into one more mistake? That's not really how it played out at all. Kansas City was awful in the second er, in the second half. They had 83 – they had seven possessions in the second half, including overtime. 83 yards and three points. Compare that to 292 and being a yard away from scoring four touchdowns on four drives in the first half. Really just remarkable. Um, and kind of sums up what the Chiefs were this year, right? I mean, they went three and four. You had every heart, hot take artist in America talking about how they solved Patrick Mahomes. This Chiefs offense is no longer the new thing that people can't figure out. Blah, blah, blah. And then they go 11 and one down the stretch enter in their fourth straight AFC championship game. But that's really kind of what the 2021-2022 Kansas City Chiefs were. They looked utterly unstoppable for two, two and a half quarter stretches at times this year, and then incredibly pedestrian for similar stretches or sometimes entire games. And it didn't really make a whole lot of sense. I didn't understand why Kansas City stopped running the football. They were averaging like six and a half yards per carry at halftime. Then even on the, uh, even on the Mahomes interception that really swung the game, uh, whereas 21-13, Cincinnati gets a stop. They get a field goal. It's 21-13. Then you get an interception. That was right after they had ripped off a seven-yard run on first down. So I didn't really understand the strategy from that point. And then you got to give Cincinnati secondary about as much credit. That was, was incredible of a performance if you've seen against that cast of skilled players by Can- on Kansas City, uh, as I've seen pretty much in the entire time that Patrick Mahomes has been the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs. He didn't have anyone open. As you were watching the end of that game, how many – 13, 14 second plays did you see Kansas City run offense because Mahomes was running around, which is really amazing to watch in its own right, extending the play, but still not being able to find anyone open. One of the plays on, I think it was the second and goal play, maybe it was the first and goal play towards the end of regulation where Kansas City has a chance to steal that, not steal that game, but 
you know, recover that game and score 28, make it 28-24 with under a minute left, the Bengals having no timeouts. You had running around, extending a play, doing a typical Mahomes play, and then Trey Hendrickson came all the way across the field and eventually got him out of bounds. I think it ended up being a game three. But Hendrickson then has to go over to the sideline, take a knee. I think he got oxygen but was just completely, like, down to his knees in terms of being exhausted. And that was really after chasing Mahomes around for a play. I know he'd been on the field for most of that drive, but just that one play was so exhausting. And, like, you got to give – the, tough, the toughness that was on display from Cincinnati's defense was pretty incredible to watch because it's demoralizing when Kansas City's moving the football up and down the field like that in the first half. Arrowhead's really loud place to play, as we debated on the internet this week, as if Joe Burrow had never played in an SEC stadium, but nonetheless still a pretty tough place to play. It's demoralizing and for them to rebound the way they did in the second half and hold arguably the best offense in the NFL, maybe the best offense we've seen in the last half decade, to 83 yards and three points on seven drives in the second half is truly the stuff of legends. And that would lead you to the other side of football. Speaking of legends, Joe Burrow, my God, what an incredible American story. Not even just a great football story. Dude goes to Ohio State. It's a nuanced underdog story, right? Like he goes to Ohio State, he gets a full scholarship, competes for the starting job and loses out. It's not like this kid was, you know, Josh Allen and had to go Juco and then Wyoming type of thing. But, you know, had never really gotten a chance to have his own team in college, and then he transfers to LSU, and my God, what a transformation from that first year to the second year and then everything since. Uh, really, you watch the film of Burrow, like his first year at LSU versus the second and to now, and it looks like a completely different quarterback. But, you know, I saw a stat yesterday. No one has won the Heisman, won a national championship, and won the Super Bowl. Joe Burrow's got a chance to do that in like two and a half or three years, which is pretty remarkable. And uh, not to turn this into a nauseating transfer portal debate, but is Joe Burrow who he is right now without the transfer portal? I would argue no. Maybe there's a path there, but certainly doesn't look like the one he took, which is really just an incredible football, like I said, American story of just kind of perseverance and toughness. I don't really know what it about it is about Burrow. I thought he was really good yesterday. You know, 23-38, 250, throws two touchdowns, had a really bad pick after the Bengals picked off Pat Mahomes and had all the momentum Really just a bad throw and great coverage by, I forget who that was, but had Jamar Chase locked up on the sideline pretty good. But a good performance by Burrow. But, I mean, he got sacked nine times the week before, hardly the fault of his own, and didn't throw a touchdown, and they won the game. He's just one of those rare athletes that people love to use the term elevate the, everyone around him. But that's pretty true for Joe Burrow. But there's also just an irrational confidence, confidence that he exudes that seems to be contagious because – you look at this roster, it's a good offense. It's a very average offensive line. It was a terrible offensive line his rookie year. It was honestly hard to watch Joe Burrow play quarterback for the Bengals last year. Not because of him, because, you know, you thought he might get killed. And then even the hit that he tore up his knee on was just an incredibly violent hit. But they were average this year. They ran the ball pretty good. They were okay to bad in pass protection. And then the defense – it's good, but this is not necessarily, I would call, an elite Super Bowl roster, and he's kind of the common thread in all of this. He just – something about him, something about greatness, sometimes you can just identify it in people, and he exudes that, and it seems to be contagious all the way down to the kicker. How about the, the, the swinging dick kicker just calling his shot in the game's biggest moments over the last three weeks? Guy's a rookie just talking about how we're going to the Super Bowl. We're going to the next round before he even kicks the ball. Um, it was – Pretty amazing stuff from Cincinnati. It's a really cool story. Cincinnati fans deserve it. It's a uh, – I lived in there for summer. I don't proclaim to know the ins and outs or the fabric of Cincinnati sports fandom by any stretch, but it seems like a city that has really loyal fans that deals with incredibly 
shitty and incredibly cheap owner. So this is awesome stuff for a uh, a loyal loyal fan base. But incredible game by Cincinnati yesterday. That was uh, that was as great of a defensive adjustment as uh, as you'll see in playoff football. And like I said, it led to one of the most shocking results I've I've seen in some time, given the way that game was going for the first 29 minutes and 40 seconds and the way it ended. Like you're down 21 to three in Arrowhead and have not forced a punt and you win the game 27, 24. I wonder what the Vegas odds on that were, if you could even wager on such a thing, just remarkable stuff by a team that possesses a lot of toughness and just kind of an attitude of, we don't really care who's on the other side. And that makes for a really fun story. I mean, Joe Burrow was sacked seven times yesterday. That's 16 sacks. In, in two playoff games, and that team is 2-0 and on the road, which is just, is just really incredible. Um, so I'm looking forward to the Super Bowl. I wonder if you can actually pull this off. I'm done wagering against Joe Burrow. Not that I was yesterday or for him, but I just figuratively and metaphorically, would, nothing he does would shock me at this point, which is pretty remarkable. And then it kind of – I'm going to do a draft thing probably in the next couple of weeks with the whole – we had the whole – Burrow to a debate and every other quarterback in that class and how you couldn't identify that Burrow kind of had it and Tua was you know a guy that was given a ton of gifts I should I would say from an offensive perspective in college is beyond me but neither here nor there because it doesn't really matter anyway he was the number one overall pick that being Burrow um but hell of a game uh you know this whole Mahomes waltzing to six seven straight Super Bowls and winning five of them probably not as realistic as some wanted to make it sound uh, breaking news, the NFL is hard, and uh, it is hard to get Super Bowls, which makes what Tom Brady has done even more remarkable. Second game went about like I thought it would. I actually thought San Francisco would win the game, but like the way the game played out was not necessarily shocking at all. Low defensive, low scoring game. Uh, San Francisco kind of did what they do. I mean, they played great defense, gave Jimmy Garoppolo enough opportunities to put enough points on the board to give them a chance. They blow a 17-7 to lead pretty quickly uh, there in the game's final 12 minutes. And then you get the ball back 25 yard line. You need, you know, 45 ish yards for a field goal to tie the game and send it to overtime and a touchdown to send your team to the Super Bowl. And they went backwards the entire time. And it led to a bad Jimmy Garoppolo interception as he's trying to throw the ball away to set up a realistic fourth down. Could throw it all on Jimmy G, but I do think, you know, if they do decide to move on from him after this season, I think that last drive is probably the poster child as to why, you know, you can win a Super Bowl with a quarterback that doesn't necessarily elevate your offense. What you cannot, but it's a lot harder to do. And I think that's exactly what Jimmy G is because when it came down to it, the most important drive of the season, they didn't have a play that netted more than uh, like positive two yards. And they went back for the other two plays. And it was just really a disaster of a drive. It was back-to-back disastrous drives. When it was 17 all, they had a delay of game penalty, and they didn't go forward at all. So the two most important drives of the season at that point uh, did not go well. And fair or unfair, that largely falls on the shoulders of the quarterback. So that one wasn't overly shocking. I thought the Niners were pretty, really good. I thought they would win and beat the Rams for the third time just because I thought Kyle Shanahan is a little bit better version of Sean McVay and seems to be kind of like the big brother that has, uh, that has little brother's number in that sense. But uh, credit to the Rams. You knew eventually – I mean – Jimmy Garoppolo went three and a half quarters without getting sacked, and I think he's only hurried three times. You knew that Los Angeles defensive line was going to get to him eventually, and when it did, he did not respond well to it. And it took a while, but, you know, the last couple of drives of the game, they really kind of hit home in what was otherwise a really incredible performance from 
San Francisco's offensive line. So just, just as we all drew up, we get the Rams and the Bengals. Um, you know, not the sexiest matchup, I would say, but two really compelling stories from a quarterback perspective from you know, Matt Stafford spends all those years in Detroit. Good numbers, bad organization, can't win the big one type of odds, but is how much is that is the Lions and how much is that is Stafford. And then he leaves the Lions in his first year. He wins three playoff games including a road game at, against Tom Brady and is in the Super Bowl. Rams went all in and sold out to win a Super Bowl in their own building this year, and they're one win away, but they got a pretty tough cookie on the other side uh, standing in their way of that one final win. So we'll do some more Super Bowl stuff as the time uh, or the game gets closer, but uh, fantastic NFL playoffs that delivered on pretty much all levels and a fascinating Super Bowl matchup to conclude what has been an awesome year of football. All right, let's get to Bracken Ray and the conversa- uh, basketball conversation as we do weekly on Sunday nights. If it sounds like I was distracted during part of this, I was busy fighting robots. My computer throughout, <laughs> throughout the second half, uh, second half or so of this interview just started playing random uh, clips and audio clips that I had stored on my phone, and I could not figure out how to stop it, even though I paused the, uh, paused the podcast to stop it at one point. So uh, I don't think it showed up in the audio too much, hopefully not too annoying, but uh, – if I sound like distracted at some point during this, uh, this interview, it is because I'm trying to figure out how to make my computer stop playing random clips. So don't really know what the deal was there, but great conversation, great insight on Bra- uh, with Brack and Ray on hoops and some NIL stuff as it pertains to Ole Miss's basketball program that I hadn't really thought about. All right, here he is, Brack and Ray. All right, we now welcome on former Andy Kennedy staffer Brack and Ray. Going to talk some Ole Miss. They had a uh, crucial week this week that ended two and one. You know, like anything else with this team, was it? Pretty, I wouldn't call it, but uh, I think a, a, a defining week in this team season. So we'll get into a little bit of that. Obviously, some SEC Big 12 Challenge stuff and uh, just kind of the hoops world at large this weekend. What's up, my man? Man, not a whole lot. Got a lot of uh, NFL and a lot of good college games, basketball games on this weekend, uh, SEC Big 12 Challenge. So just been a lot of sports the past 48 hours. Yeah, this is one of the greatest times of the year. And, you know, it's funny from a college, from talking about from like a sports viewing standpoint, obviously you got the, the football, like it's hard tough to beat the NFL playoffs. I mean, my God, just look at the last weekend plus the Bengals game as we recorded as the second game, record this as the second game starts up. But, you know, you have in the, like any time there's some sort of large scale discussion about, it usually seems like it manifests itself when like a high profile kid goes some other route other than college basketball. People talk about in uh I would say exaggerate about like the death of college basketball and all that every year though, around this time, mid January through March, I'm reminded of how awesome college basketball is because as the NFL kind of fades away, there's fewer games. You're not competing with it on Sundays, but two games a day, whatever, like you get six, seven Saturdays of just college basketball games all day. And I feel like that's when you kind of get reminded, actually this sport still kind of kicks ass. No doubt. And like, you know, during non-conference, you're obviously competing with college football. And I think a lot of P5 teams over the past five to 10 years have done a much better job of trying to schedule harder during non-conference to get people bought in earlier in the season. But you're right. Hey, once conference play starts, college football's kind of ended. The NFL obviously coming to an end here in the next week or two as well. 
people start to get into it, they get that college basketball fever. And then we all know about March as well, where everybody in their country in the country has their eyes once March madness rolls around. Right. Exactly. And that's one of the things, I mean, I'm sure you'd be a little differently working in the industry, but just from like a viewership standpoint, like college basketball is always going to be just fine because of the NCAA tournament, just being one of the most awesome sports spectacles on earth. Like there's just nothing like it. And you like get reminded of it every year. It's hard to remember how awesome it is, you know, in July or even like October or something, but damn that tournament's awesome. And I can't wait for a uh, full edition of it this year. Let's uh kind of getting started. So I had this question written down to ask you as I was watching some of the games yesterday, when you're on a staff and you're in the heart of sec season, do you guys like or dislike the sec big 12 challenge? Like, is that something that you just think, oh, whatever, it's another game? Does it disrupt your rhythm? What, uh, what do you guys – how do you guys view it as a staff? You know, I'll tell you this. I think that it was even more important um, about five – you know, kind of in its inception, it was even more important than it is today because the league was so bad getting right. three to four teams in every year, and you needed that game in there as a non-conference boost, increases your strength of schedule – gives you um, another opportunity at what we now call, you know, quad one or maybe a quad two win. So I think it was super important at the time as well. I think now it's kind of just a nice little change of pace too. Um, for some of these teams, you know, you're beating up on each other and cannibalizing each other. It's so one last opportunity for the conference to raise its, uh, you know, raise where it is at from a conference standing standpoint. Going six and four yesterday was huge two years in a row for the conference winning the SEC Big 12 Challenge. And as the conference gets more and more serious about, um, you know, basketball, these things from a national perception standpoint are huge for the SEC. It's a great point you make. And particularly, I think you nailed it in terms of the time frame. But even like two – or I guess that would be three years ago at this point. I remember Kermit's first year, they – you know, the league was better, obviously. You had that – whatever that year was where you had the bottoming out and they're like, all right, this, this shit's not going to stand. Like, we can't do this anymore. But um, – sorry, I had some random video clip playing in that. But anyway, <laughs> um, as I'm looking up these scores. But I remember in Kermit's first year, I believe they had a pretty good Iowa State team with Taylor Horton Tucker come into the pavilion. They shot something ridiculous from the field and kind of ran Ole Miss out of the gym. But I remember writing about that being an important opportunity for Ole Miss because that year they get into the tournament largely because they beat Auburn twice when Bruce Pearl's kind of first good team and then that road win at State. The league was better, but it wasn't as deep as it was now unless I'm misremembering. I just remember that Iowa State game being a big opportunity for Ole Miss to kind of boost its net. I believe that was the first year of net and its resume. So that was a huge opportunity for them. Let me give you one more point on that, too. For a school like Ole Miss, who if you – we'll just combine RPI and net into one term. Over the past, we'll call it 15 years, has probably averaged out about 80 in where it sat. And one thing that we've struggled with a lot is you're not an automatic win for some top 25 team, all right, but you're also not a team that if you go in and lose to, it's fine. Right. You're not good enough to where, hey, it's kind of a house money game from a non-conference standpoint. So we always struggled getting home and homes and big games for some of these big name universities. And in 2018, 
you go play at Texas and Austin, they probably would have never agreed to that against an Ole Miss, you know, from a scheduling standpoint. Having Baylor at home, everybody remembers that game where we were up 15 or so. That's another thing for a program like Ole Miss and, you know, maybe some other teams in the league that you can't get some of these non-conference games if it's not for the SEC Big 12 Challenge. Um, and I think, you know, we've got, it feels like we've gotten Kansas State like three times since we've done this tournament. But for some of these other matchups as well, it's really huge for Ole Miss uh, from both an opportunity to get a win over a good team, but also, you know, playing a national brand school um, in basketball. Yeah, you're dead on, and that's something I hadn't really thought about. And I think you probably forget about it as the league's gotten better in the non-conference slate. Has it mattered as much? When you look at this team's non-conference slate this year, it wasn't exactly a murderer's row. And then Memphis hasn't really turned out to be good anyway. So it was really a rather weak one. But you didn't think about it from that standpoint because the league was fine. So it's like, whatever, they'll have plenty of opportunities. But as you mentioned, like when the league wasn't great, that actually mattered a lot. I mean, hell, that first, the first AK tournament team, in 2012, I guess that would have been technically 13 by the time they made the tournament, but 2012-2013 season, you know, they were there was still argument, arguing and kind of debating the day of that Nash, uh, the SEC championship game against Florida, whether Ole Miss had done enough to get in. You had the stupid Jimmy Dykes graphic about front of the plane, back of the plane, all that shit. And they're in the conference championship game. That team won like 26 games and was kind of a borderline SEC tournament, uh, or excuse me, borderline at-large decision. And like – it feels like we live in a different world now because the league's good, but like they would have loved to have had the SEC Big 12 challenge back then, I'd imagine. No doubt, no doubt. And I always use the the um, the example of Bryce Drews. I think it was his first year at Vanderbilt. They were like 17 and 15 and went to the tournament because they scheduled hard. You know, part of that, I think um, the commissioner and the SEC has put more of an emphasis on that to ADs and coaches in the league to try to schedule harder but also having things like, you know, better facilities and some of this SEC network money are kind of helping with that as well for buy games and stuff like that. So it's huge to, to schedule hard because it gives you, um, it gives you a little bit more leeway um, going into, you know, conference play as well. Yeah. And so on, like on top of that as well, or I guess as we kind of like get into it, like, do you look at the schedule each year when you're staff and like think like we got a good draw or we didn't get a good draw? Like, I, I guess like I, like when when you came, the schedule comes out this year, you know you're in the SEC Big Twelve Challenge. Are you hoping for the best team possible? That may seem like a very obvious question. Yeah, I mean, I think you always are. I mean, and you know, it seems like it always ends up with the Kentucky, Kansas. And, you know, that happens a lot. But I mean, it was huge for us getting Texas. That was a big deal for us. Um, and you go and play against Mo Bamba. Um, I mean, that, that was a huge deal, but yeah, you're hoping for best draw possible. And I know that they schedule it out to where the sec teams have to perform to a certain level as well. And then knock the other four teams out of the conference as well. So we were always, you know, you're always hoping that your average over the past, whatever it is, two seasons, maybe to get you into the tournament, you're always hoping you can get in there because if not, you get the AAC drawing and really and truly that's normally a three bid league. Um, that, you know, has some teams that really fluctuate from a performance standpoint. So you still get a non-conference one, but it's not as sexy. Makes sense. What uh, Did anything stand out yesterday as we just kind of run through it before we get into Ole Miss? Alabama gets a, mas uh, a massive win. Uh, Kentucky beat the living shit out of Kansas. Just as you went down the board yesterday, did anything stand out to you? 
I mean, I thought that Kentucky game, that was crazy. I was not expecting that at all. Um, and it shows that, you know, their ceiling's super high. I mean, they could be a Final Four team, but I think that their floor is decently low as well and could get knocked out in the second week too. So um, Kentucky played really well. Great game between Texas and Tennessee. I thought it was really cool. A lot of the Chris Beard, uh, Rick Barnes things they kind of did going in that game, bringing Rick Barnes back as he obviously was there for whatever it was, 17 years or so. Those are two guys that I like a lot as well. Bama, I think this week was huge for them because they have been all over the place. I'm kind of starting to think that they're a team that kind of plays to the level of the competition that they play against. That kind of seems like what their deal is right now. Um, I still think Notes can get it going. But like I said, six and four for the SEC, back-to-back years winning that. Um, You know, going into the previous – before the last two years, I think the Big 12 was winning like two-thirds of these games. So, huge deal for the conference from a national perception. Absolutely. And Alabama is interesting because you've been kind of on it early on in the – particularly early on in the years we discussed this. You mentioned you didn't like their front court. I was – I haven't watched a ton of Baylor this year, but I was kind of surprised at how well, well they fared in this game given kind of how a typical Scott Drew team is constructed. Yeah, and they had a they had a great atmosphere as well at that game. I saw. I mean, they had like three thousand students there, which was awesome. But yeah, for Bama, look, there's three things that you know kind of concern me. Um, a, don't love their front court. B, and this kind of plays into A. I think they have rebounding problems at times. C, when you go so analytically focused and shoot the volume of threes they do as well, what happens on the night when it doesn't go in? You know, you're putting a lot of emphasis on that. So going into the tournament, you know, that's always going to be uh, kind of my concern with them going forward. What I, seems like to me, the more and more I watch Kentucky, the more and more I like them. They're someone to me that could be there on the final weekend of the season. And you talk about Auburn's kind of stolen the show from like a national, I guess, attention standpoint with regard to the mm-hmm. SEC. They're kind of the headliner. But damn, Kentucky's good. I mean, what, they've only lost – uh, I had the record up a second ago, but they're they're really tough. And to me, this seems like one of Cal's better teams in terms of how they play together as well. Yeah, and I, you know I've told you this for years now, but the thing with Cal that he does he doesn't get enough credit for is his whole tenure there. He's flipped rosters, and so now he's having to flip these rosters with some one and dones and having some transfers in there as well. I don't think that there's anybody in the country that's better suited for kind of this environment, he knows how to get teams to play well in a very short amount of time. Uh, it's just, it's kind of like football, right? Um, Lane would much rather have dart on campus in January than in, in June. And for Cal, you know, he's got, he's only got some of these dudes here for half a year before the season starts. Um, and I think that that's something that we're going to continue to see a strength of his going forward. Their only conference losses, they lose at Auburn. Can't really fault them there. And then they lost a tough game at LSU when they lost um, – if you if you were, like, watching that game, they lost Severe Wheeler in the first, like, four minutes of that game. Come all the way back. If they hadn't had such a late – they had a late game, late issue with some of the press break shit where they got a turnover and then they turned it right back over. But that was LSU pretty much fully healthy and then a weird game to Notre Dame. But you're talking a win in ten- against Tennessee in there. I think, obviously, the most impressive win of the season – being asked last night, yeah. last night yep. at Kansas. And then obviously there, I think they have four losses on the year and the fourth one being the, to Duke in the opener, but right. they're playing really, really well. And they got, I wouldn't say the schedule opens up some, but you get Vandy at home at Alabama at South Carolina home against Florida. Like there's a chance for them to kind of get fat over the next three, four games. 
Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, it's one of these things where Auburn, number one in the country, all that stuff. But um, if that game at Auburn had been played in Rupp, is it a different story? So it's going to be interesting to see the two-headed monster of the SEC right now that is Auburn and, and Kentucky, um, especially once SEC tournament time comes. Keep going down kind of through these games or whatever. Texas Tech loses a tough game on Tuesday night. I think that was maybe it was Monday night at uh, at Kansas. Probably should have won that game. I watched pretty much that entire second half in the overtime and left thinking, uh, I think Texas Tech might be better than Kansas. I don't know if that's actually true, but like leaving that game, they certainly played better that night, didn't get the result they wanted. That's a tough spot for State to be in. State had a terrible, excuse me, a tough week. They go and lose an overtime game at Rupp. And then you catch a Texas Tech team that not that they necessarily, I would say, got screwed uh, at Kansas, but there were some favorable whistles and they lost a tough game. Uh, this felt like a rebound central and Texas Tech really kind of had their way with them. What do you think of Texas Tech? They seem really, really tough. Yeah, so Texas Tech, um, they promoted their assistant coach, Mark Adams, to head right. coach. And Mark is a, is a Chris Beard guy um, that is their, he was their defensive coordinator. And always had been. So, I mean, he had full autonomy over the defense when he was an assistant for Chris Beard. And uh, he was able to keep some of the staff there very well liked, has a lot of good um, Texas connections. But, I mean, they kind of just beat State's ass yesterday. I mean, and, and, you know, last week I thought was huge for State because they need – if you get one of those two, you're on the right side of the bubble. Yeah. Um, you go 0 for 2 and now you're probably 6th or 7th out. And I think Howland's got some pressure on him this year to, to, to go to the tournament. They've got a lot of talent. Um, they're not super deep, but they're a talented team. But I really like what Texas Tech does. Mark Adams done a good job. He hit the portal there some as well. And, you know, they're actually playing uh, Texas in Lubbock on Tuesday. And uh, right after the game ended, all the tech started camping out with tents to line up for the Texas Tech uh, game because they know this – you know, tickets and getting in are going to be crazy. So that's going to be a really fun matchup, watching Beard and Adams go at it as well on Tuesday. Is there any – just someone who worked inside of a basketball building in an office, do you think there's any sort of animosity – not animosity might be the wrong word. Um, well, animosity probably be okay from, like, a crowd perspective. But, like, facing your former coach, he leads yes. for a better job in state. Like, how much of the uh, – I mean, for the lack of a better phrase, is they're like, let's fucking stick it to this guy. It, will there be in that game? From a locker room standpoint, I think the fans will probably be going nuts as well. Yeah, I, I think there, there definitely will be. Um, you know, for, it's, it's kind of like, although Lincoln Riley is probably about to get Caleb Williams and gotten some other guys from Oklahoma, there were some dudes really pissed and went out on social media talking about how he said he'd never leave for another job, all that kind of stuff. I don't know that Beard ever, you know, said anything like that, but I know that uh, their fans are going to be fired up about it. I think they were pretty pissed because, it, you know, leaving for an in-state school that n not a rivalry, so to speak, but kind of in a small way is, um, is kind of, you know, that's a, that's a gut punch to them. But it's really cool. Both programs are at a, a really good spot right now and both have a chance to, you know, win a few games in the tournament too. So I think it's going to be a really interesting battle. Chris Beard's one of the most respected coaches in the country and, and Mark Adams uh, also has a good name to him as well. So that's going to be a really fun matchup on Tuesday. But I, to your point, I think it's going to be very hostile and uh, very intense as well. That is going to be a fun one for sure. On the state side of this, I – so. 
I watched them on Tuesday night and Rupp, pretty much watched all of that game. I was really impressed with Iverson Molinar. He seems like he's turned into a really nice player for them. Yep. State's playing good basketball, but like you mentioned, they've had they had some hiccups early on in the season. I mean, even the loss to Ole Miss, that's not early on in the season, but it's a bad loss. They lost by 14 to a Louisville team that's not very good. Lose to kind of a middle-of-pack Minnesota team. I think that Colorado State team's pretty good, but like – they, they feel like they've lost all their leeway, which is unfortunate because they're hitting a tough part of their schedule and actually playing good basketball. What have you seen from them in the last month? I like leave thinking they're a tournament team, but that, like you outlined, doesn't necessarily mean they're going to get there. Yeah, they're they're very bubbly. Um, to your point, Iverson Molinar is playing at a super high level right now. Um, what, I mean, he's shooting like 50% from the field. He's super efficient. They run a lot of offense through him. The crazy part to me about State this year is maybe not so much in the past month, to your point, but this is one of the better teams from a half-court offense standpoint that Howland's had. I've told you know everybody consistently that I've never been impressed with his stuff in the half-court and kind of the sets he runs. But, you know, they're better there. I think for them, um, inconsistency is, is huge for them right now. And then um, second, they're not very deep. Um, you know, really in, in college basketball, once you get to this point in the season, you really only need se- seven or eight dudes. But, you know, I don't know that Howland's comfortable uh, really with more than six of them right now. And so I think that's another thing that's hindering them a little bit. Looking down the line for them, they get South Carolina at home and then you go at Arkansas, Tennessee at home and LSU and then at Alabama. Uh, the South yeah. Carolina team notwithstanding, that's going to be kind of what makes or breaks them from a tournament standpoint over the next two and a half weeks, is it not? Because without reading every single game they have left, after you finish that four-game stretch, they have a weird deal where they go back-to-back against Missouri on two separate uh, – on uh, twice in two days – or excuse me, twice in three days. And then it's at South Carolina, Vanderbilt, home against Auburn and Texas A&M. Like this four-game stretch after the South Carolina game that you got to take care of business feels like this is something that could make or break them. Like on February 17th, which is the day after the Alabama game – I feel like you'll know possibly Howland's fate and also where this team is headed from a tournament perspective. Yeah, I mean, if you go win, you know, two or three out of four of those, you feel pretty good going into that back-end stretch. Um, you know, the crazy part, though, is South Carolina's kind of a pain in everybody's ass right now because I don't even know that they're an NIT team. Um, but, you know, they went and beat A&M, and A&M's trying to get in the tournament as well and kind of bubbly. So, that's not going to be an easy one against Frank's team there. They play super hard. But, yeah, this four-game stretch, I think you made a great point there. It's going to determine what their future of that program looks like a little bit uh, because of Howland and, you know, one and six or one and seven so far for him starting off. Is he just run – you mentioned you've never been impressed with him from an X's and O's standpoint, and I hear that from people all the time, and mostly people that don't know basketball like you do, where they're like, I don't understand how he has all this talent and they look that terrible offensively. Is it just an outdated thing, or is that just the way he prefers to play? I guess it could be both, but, like, why he does – particularly, I guess this year might not be the greatest example. But man, they've had some great offensive talent through the years, and it always just looks very, very, like, screwed down in a bad way offensively. Why is that, and what do you see when you watch them play offense? Yeah, I think it's too simplistic and too elementary, the stuff that he runs. Um, it's a lot of just very basic quick hitters. I think good offensive coaches are ones that put defenses in bad matchups. And I think he fails to do that a lot. To your point, they've, all, they've had talent a, a lot of the years that he's been there. Um, my first 
eye-opener for him was actually his very first year where he has, you know, Q, Malik, Fred Peters, um, IJ Reddy, I'm missing Craig, oh, Craig Sword. They had a really good team. And, you know, year one, you give them benefit of the doubt, but it's like this should at least be a host NIT team. And they have a losing season. They were not very good. So I was like, huh, there's, there's something here. And his tenure there has always been very interesting to me. Um, he gets a lot of kids, too. He, he's, got this, he's got this perception of being a really good recruiter. But if you take out the kids that were related to state alumni – you know, I mean, it kind of it kind of shrivels down from there as well. State basketball alumni, so it's kind of hard to tell. He's he's benefited from that maybe more than anybody in the country has over the past over his past six or seven years. So, very interesting tenure for him. To your point, though, I think it's too simplistic, and he doesn't do a good job of getting defenses into bad matchups with his talented players. I don't know how old he is. I remember sitting in a press conference one time uh, and hearing him talk about his grandkids. So that, uh, just from a simple genetic standpoint, I'm guessing he's not young. Do you think this is his last gig? Like, if it doesn't go well this year, uh, if it ends poorly this year and he gets axed, like, that that guy doesn't pop up somewhere else, does he? I've heard a little bit of both. um, So I could see either way. I do think that whatever, you know, if if he gets fired, I think he'll – end up living back on the west coast though that's my gut there so whether he's coaching or not i do think he'll be back in california interesting as we keep rolling down here before we get to some of the old miss stuff kentucky kansas and we did the kentucky part of it but the kansas side they're 17 and 3 they're fifth in the country they've been good at times but like i've never been overly impressed with them like if you made me bet for or against their a final four team or how elite eight because final four is pretty tough I would actually say no. What have you seen watching Kansas this year? Well, um, you know, with Kansas, I mean, I think they've had a pretty good season so far. I think last night, you know, you're occasionally just going to have games where it's not it, – things aren't clicking for them. And so I think their games that they've lost or even some close wins that they've had this year, they, they it kind of seems like a on-court chemistry deal where not like, hey, you've got beef – you know, players have a beef with each other, but they can't figure out how to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. But then there's other nights where they're on as well. So, Self's got a, a, a deal too, um, just like Cal, where he's kind of got a mixture of your one-and-done guys, your high-rated recruits, and some transfers. And he's got more of the transfers than he probably had in the past. And so, finding a way for that to gel – I think it's something that program's trying to figure out right now because they know they're going to have to evolve to it going forward. What do you make of LSU yesterday? Is that just a matter of them needing to get healthy? Like, do you – is this kind of a uh, part portion of their season where you probably look back and you think, well, I mean, you look at who they had available versus what they didn't? Because I think fully healthy, they're actually kind of scary. But yesterday was surprising. I figured they would win this one on the road uh, no matter who they were down. I did as well because um, I, I don't just love TCU, but – I think for LSU, their big thing, and we talked about this, like they, they were, what, undefeated in non-conference, and we said, look, going into SEC play, like they're probably going to lose four or five of them. This is not going to keep up. For LSU, I think that it's not just being hurt, but it's also molding that roster back together as the pieces come in and getting them to gel, and I think that that's going to be a big thing for LSU because – they had, what, two of the guys back last night, but but not all of them. Or Pinson was on minutes restriction. I didn't watch the whole game. But I know that – I think that that's kind of something that they're, they're struggling with as well. On the other side, if you talk about a team on the upswing, it seems like Arkansas has figured it out. They get a nice win over Bob Huggins' team. That's pretty good, not great, 
by any stretch, but it seems like Muss and Arkansas have figured it out. I think they've won six in a row at this point. And you're right. talking a road win at LSU mixed in there. Obviously, they beat Ole Miss. I mean, that's a road win in the SEC. Not great, but you get a home win over A&M in there as well. Oh. Seems like they're playing much better basketball. Yeah, they kind of just seem like maybe like an eight seed in the NCAA tournament to me, right? Like even that game against Ole Miss this past week, I didn't find them overly impressive. Going and beating Hugs up in West Virginia is is no easy feat at all. I think West Virginia has been playing bad lately too, but they just kind of seem like a you know comfortable on Selection Sunday, eight nine seed in the tournament, make make and win a game or so. I don't think their ceiling is obviously anywhere near as big as it was last year though. The only non-one that I found interesting, non-SEC Big 12 challenge game, that is, was um, South Carolina and Texas A&M. A&M starts the season, what, I guess 14, something, 14-1, 14-2, something like that. And then they lose. They've now lost three in a, or four in a row. They lose that tough game at home to Kentucky. And then it seems like not completely wheels falling off, but they've come back down to earth. Is this more regression to the mean, or do you think this is a tournament team? You said A&M? Yeah, A&M. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a regression of the mean because I think Buzz is always going to get the most out of his team from a potential standpoint. I just don't see this team. This team's not super talented. Um, they're not NCAA tournament talented on paper to me. The thing always is like, hey, <laughs> Buzz is going to get you a few wins better than what your prediction is because of his ability to coach, also his ability to motivate, keep locker rooms together as well. I think this is regression to mean, but I don't think you'll see the wheels fall off. A&M since day one has always seemed like an NIT host team to me. So that's three years for him there now. Not that there would be any pressure going into year four, but how would you kind of evaluate what he's done so far? Give it just for the sake of the argument, if they don't end up making the tournament there this year, because if you'd have told me on paper, I'd think I'd have probably said when he took the job, they'll make a tournament within the first three years, just because I think pretty highly of him as a uh, coach. But that was also a pretty solid rebuild from taking over from Billy Kennedy. How do you evaluate big picture what Buzz has done at A&M so far? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a good job. Um, I, when you talk to people, they normally have it um, somewhere between fifth and seventh in the league is kind of where that job sits um, from a perception standpoint. You're right. It was a little bit of a rebuild, but that's a good enough job to where it's got enough resources to where you should be, you know, you have the capability to rebuild it in a year or two. Um, you know, it's, it's not like taking over whoever has to take over Georgia. I mean, that's going to be a, a big lift, right? So, I still have faith in uh, Buzz. I think he may have to have some conversations with the staff around why personnel doesn't look better than it does. Um, but, you know, Buzz is a Texas guy. Um, he loves that job. Obviously left – it's kind of a lateral move in a way going from Virginia Tech um, to there. So I think Buzz still gets it done. But for right now, he's coached from an in-game standpoint, done exactly what I would have thought, maximizes teams, right? From a personnel standpoint, I think there's some questions to be had. I think that's a great way to put it. That's a bad loss to South Carolina. That felt like a chance for them to get right. I assume they come back home after that. I haven't looked at their schedule, but that would make sense with the way their schedule was this past week. That's a tough one because Frank doesn't have a very good team this year. That's right. Frank's team's not talented, but they're kind of a pain in the ass, and we've talked about this. I mean, I I kind of think this may be it for Frank uh, there at South Carolina. So that was one that – 
if you're wanting to keep the – you know, it's not completely over, but that's one that puts you behind the eight ball a lot um, trying to get into the NCAA tournament. So A&M's got some work to do. Another thing about the league being good, as we talked about at the top, you get a road game at Tennessee's ranked home against Missouri, then back-to-back games against LSU and Auburn. So, like, if they're going to prove it, they'll have a chance um, to over the next week or so. That was really – I don't think we missed much anything. Did anything else stand out to you yesterday? Would it could be SEC Big 12 Challenge or just college basketball as a whole? No, not really. Um, I think that that was about it. You know, Auburn went in by 20 um, – I don't know that I expected them to win by that much. I like Porter Moser a lot in Oklahoma. Um, but, you know, they're just kind of showing that they are the cream of the crop right now. They they don't have many bad days. So, um, Bruce obviously got extended 5.4 for eight years. It increases a quarter of a mil every year. So, you know, it, it's really interesting. I mean, it, it's interesting to see. It's like laying at Ole Miss. For some of these jobs, you can them into better jobs than they are if you're winning um the school and the boosters etc are willing to put money into it as well and so you know if you would have told me half a decade ago that an auburn coach was going to stay put rather than going to louisville i mean i would not have bought it so i mean it's really really good for the league i've told you a million times i go back and forth on what i think about bruce whether <laughs> i like him or not um, but, man, he, he's a hell of a coach, and they do a great job getting pers- good personnel in there. That seemed like the perfect combination, right? So they get that new arena either right before or right after he got there. I can't really remember. And yep. he, got a, how, he got a buy-in from them, like, almost immediately. Like, they, they were showing up at games his first year, first two years, when Auburn wasn't very good. How hard is this to do? Because Auburn now – I mean, say you just get two, three more years of Pearl Top, like, a minimum. So you're talking about like a six, seven-year sample size at that point. I would call them a perennial top 15 program with the way this is trending in the current stage, not historically over the last two decades. But since the Bruce Pearl era has started at Auburn, I would say they're a top 15, top 20-ish program. How hard is that to do at a place that didn't have a ton of basketball tradition? And is it just kind of the perfect storm? Or how much credit do you give Bruce for that? Oh, I mean, it's it's all to Bruce. Um, I think, you know, it takes somebody special. It's one of the most impressive program turnarounds that, that I've seen, uh, to be honest with you. You know, the crazy part is he was hired with a year of a show cause left because of his stuff at Tennessee. He was hired on to Auburn at that. And his first three years there, they were not very good. I think what he did is he's got a – he does a great job of getting fans to buy into his program just because of his personalities or his personality, whether you love the antics or not. But I think one thing that happened um, that's maybe different than some of these bottom four or five teams in the SEC that coaches after three years are on the hot seat is they had personnel, future personnel to really get buy-in and, you know, signing five stars and four stars and that kind of stuff that's really um, helped him get buy-in when things were just kind of a, a, a slow rebuild. Um, he's a really good in games coach. He's the best in the country and special situations. So in line out of bounds plays and side out of bounds plays. Um, he's really good there as well. But I mean, Auburn fans have to be super happy. And I think Alan Green's a super talented AD as well. So tip of the cap to him for getting that done. Yeah, that's the, we're talking the same Alan Green who fought off a coup basically to have Kevin Steele become the head coach at Auburn. That was a, I hope something more comes out about that uh, aspect of it from, uh, couple years from now that was a wild wild story that really never got the uh, attention 
it deserved. But yeah, it's crazy. Like the like you wouldn't like Auburn was kind of a footnote when it came to SEC basketball. Now it's one of the toughest places to go play and one of the better programs in the conference. I just I find that incredible how quickly that's happened. Um, I imagine the new arena helps. Like you mentioned him selling it. Like was there a little bit of a perfect storm aspect of it of that like kind of coming into its own? You get a high profile coach. Like I'm not like I guess dissing him from a credit standpoint, but it does feel like things fell in line for him a little bit there as well. Yeah, I mean, a little bit. I think that arena was like four years old maybe when he got it. I think on the arena topic, like for that program, it's more uh, – it was more of Bruce not having a shitty arena rather than having like this gold with the whistles and stuff. But their students are a real advantage in that game. I mean, they, they can – they are so close to you. It's so loud. When you walk in during a shoot-around and it's empty, you feel like you're in a big high school gym. But when you walk in there and there's 8,500 people and they're all on top of you, it literally is one of the most intimidating places to play in the conference. I guess you're right. It did predate him because Marshall was in the new one and Pearl didn't get there till 14, 15. So you're probably right on that. Yep. I don't know why I thought it came in at about the same time. But I don't know. Pretty impressive stuff from Pearl and Auburn. I think we hit just about everything else. Let's get into Ole Miss. They have a three-game week this week because of COVID canceled their first conference game against Florida. That was supposed to be like December 29th. They played that on a Monday, then Arkansas and Kansas State. It's a two-in-one week. I wouldn't describe any of the games necessarily pretty, but I think, you know, if you're wondering if this team was going to kind of fold it in per se, and like when you talk about that, like what does that actually mean? I would say more like a kind of a go through the motions to just get through the year. I think you got your answer, uh, both in the way they defend and you get two wins. I don't know the last time Ole Miss had a two-win week, probably sometime back in December. What did you think of a week as, of the week as a whole and kind of what it means going forward? Yeah, I mean, look, I think we, we talked about this. They needed to get at least one uh, to keep it going forward. And like you said, this is not like a locker room falls apart issues, but it's more of, you know, just main. It, it would have been more of going through the motions if you lose all three. Um, you know, I think, I think this is something that uh, getting two out of three is huge, not what we expected. It's going to be big for their psyche. I think for the program, how this week, and this is not, you know, complete program changing thing, but just a one week sample size, you're starting to see that we've, they've definitely got some young pieces to build around as well, um, which is huge. And so, that was great. And even in the Arkansas loss, they out-rebounded all three teams this week. Um, I don't know how many back-to-back games they out-rebounded people this whole season outside of maybe some cupcake non-conference. So, you know, that goes to show that they're still playing hard. Um, I think this week was good to make sure that they don't go through the motions going forward and they prove that they didn't this past weekend. I'm glad you went there on the rebounding because I was about to, that's what I had written down to ask you. And I was about to ask, wonder what's changed. And I was throw a theory at you. You got seven rebounds from Deshaun Ruffin and seven from Matthew Morrell yesterday of the 43 yeah. rebounds. Ole Miss had a team. You get four, you get 14 of those from your guards. What do you think's changed? How much of it was matchup induced or how much of it is them getting better? Well, I mean, I think there was some matchup induced. Um, if you look at it, like I thought that, Florida um, earlier this week was one of the best guard matchups that Ole Miss had this year. It was a really good matchup for Ole Miss from a guard standpoint. I think it, this. I think when you look at rebounding this past week, you can look at the schematics and X's and O's and all that kind of stuff. Really, this was an effort thing. Um, Ole Miss, I think the whole weekend won their 50-50 balls, their live balls as well. Um, and so that it, it shows effort. 
and how they're playing super hard this past week, um, which is not, you know, which was something that you and I had a question of what would that look like. Deshaun Ruffin, staying on the topic of him, his last three games, 21, 10, and 17. And in those games, you're talking two turnovers, three turnovers, and three turnovers. It seems like he's starting to – I don't want to say, like, figure it out because that's really not fair, right? Because he basically got no non-conference. Like, he misses basically the entire non-conference slate uh, pre-middle. He gets three non-conference games and then kind of goes right into the SEC play. I don't even really count New Orleans because I'm not even sure how many minutes he was on the floor in that season opener before he gets hurt. I think it was, like, 15 or so. But it seems like he's – I'd say figure it out. It seems like he's kind of coming into his own and getting adjusted to college basketball because – I've noticed him, he's finishing better at the rim, and he's also not turning it over. And his shot selection, I think, in the last month has gotten a little bit better as well. What have you seen from him over the last kind of four or five-game stretch? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, he had a plus 14, plus minus yesterday, which is great. We knew that he could create. We knew he could score. Um, I think one thing that that you make a good point on is I think they're starting to run more action for him. And – one of their best offensive situations outside of transition and, uh, and putbacks is pick and roll situation with Nas Brooks. It, it, now, Ruffin is not super efficient right now. His field goal percentage, 3% is not great. But because of you know, how electrifying he is and what he's been able to do the past couple of weeks, the scouting report has changed to giving a lot more attention to him um, than they've had to with uh, Jarkel or Austin Crowley, whoever it may be, running point in the past. So in these pick-and-roll situations, you see it once or twice a game. People put so much attention on him or they're hedging however they're guarding the ball screens. Boom, easy Nas Brooks, uh, pit, you know, alley-oop dunk. And Nas Brooks right now is shooting 64% in pick-and-roll situations. A lot of that is because of how much attention teams defensively are having to put on Ruffin. So we look at his stat sheet, you know, he's – has double digit uh, in scoring the vast majority of the games. He does. He has a lot of assists yesterday. Boom. Rebounds pretty well. But I think there's some stuff outside of the stat sheet from how you have to guard him that could start opening this Ole Miss offense up a little bit. He's at 12 points a game, and that's outside of a 19-point performance at Dayton. Pretty much, like, that's going to hold into double digits in terms of it being, comp- like, his conference-only points per game. You make a great yep. point about running more action for him in the pick-and-roll stuff. His assist numbers over the last four games, outside of having zero against Arkansas and going 2-11 from the field, that might be a pretty, pretty big reason why they lost that game, have been great. And so, as you kind of look at this team as a whole – Morrell gets seven rebounds yesterday. I don't think he had a single turnover. I'll double check that. Yeah, he definitely did not have a single turnover. Seems like he's playing better. And I've noticed in yep. the last couple of weeks, he didn't have a great scoring and shooting night last night. I think he ended up with nine points, three of eight from the field. It seems like he's in the last three-ish weeks, it's, he's found ways to affect the game even when he's not shooting it well. And so you're kind of seeing two younger guys, two highly recruited guys, kind of figure this thing out at the SEC level around the same time. Yeah, and, you know, to go back to the roughing point, bringing in Morrell with this as well, Morrell in SEC play shooting 50% from the three-point line. Think about when Ruffin got added into the equation, right? So Ruffin being able to create and draw so much attention, if you look at the stats, Morrell's um, quantity of uncontested jump shots has gone up significantly. 
So that's another thing there as well that's helping Morrell. If he gets an uncontested shot, makes the first, makes the first two, whatever the case may be, he kind of seems like a guy that has to get that, see that first shot get in to really develop confidence. And sometimes that's even in transition. Rough and playing is benefiting Morrell more than maybe than probably anybody on the team right now. So their one-two punch is going to be a lot of fun to watch the next three years, two or three years. So now they go two and one. Yesterday they played – I thought they played pretty well offensively. I thought Ruffin had a pretty good day. But you're also talking about a Kansas State team that if I – so they, they finished at 45% from the field. But you're talking about – no, excuse me, that's Ole Miss. Sorry, I was going to say there's no way that was correct. They shoot 30% from the field. That's not going to win hardly any games. It's not a great Kansas State team, but it's a Kansas State team that's got a couple good wins, and they took Kansas down to the wire. But they were like nine of their first 40. Some of that you got to give credit to Ole Miss shooting the uh, – excuse me, playing good defense. But I think with the way Ole Miss has defended, like to me, as bad as this team is and as bad as it's gotten at times, the way they've continued to defend, and they're not perfect even through it all, is impressive to me. And you got to give Kermit Davis some credit there because – that's tough to do when things are going as tough as they they have been a lot of the time for them on the offensive end. No doubt. I think, I think it's super impressive um, that they're able to still guard like that. And, you know, one thing you see with a lot of immature college players is if shots aren't falling, they're not guarding. And, you know, one thing we've, we've talked about personnel is an issue and there's probably not enough talent on this Ole Miss floor that, that we'd like there to be. But I do think that they've got good guys, genuinely good dudes. I hear that nonstop both in press conferences and kind of behind doors as well. And I think, you know, when, you, when you've got guys like that on your team, they're never really going to quit. So defensively, out of like the 10 different types of action that you can guard, Ole Misses are really, really good and just about everything except for uh, like cuts, like basket cuts and stuff like that. So they continue to guard at a good level and the maturity to get popped in the mouth a lot this year and continue to, to guard, I, I do find impressive. When you talk about this young core, we outlined it. If you're going to put like kind of the selling point, like if I, if I was tasked with having to sell the program and why things will end up being fine, you're selling Ruffin, you're selling Morrell. When you talk about the young core, you would like to be able to sell, um, excuse me, Jamie and Brakefield. I went blank there for a second, but it just really hasn't happened yet. What do you make of his season and what hasn't happened and what does he need to do better? Yeah, I mean, well, I will say this. He does give them an ability to stretch for a floor a little bit from a three-point shooting standpoint, um, you know, w- which is good. I just think for him, I haven't been super impressed with his motor, um, and that's something that's kind of been questioned at times in, in, in high school. Not that he's lazy, but I think they would like to see him have a little bit bigger of a motor. And that also leads to, hey, how much of rebounding is effort? It's like 80% of it, Right. He's a guy that they need to be, um, you know, delivering on the offensive and defensive rebounding side of the house more than he has because they're having to re- uh, they're having to depend a lot on Nas Brooks for that, and then some of their bigger guards as well. So for him going forward, I don't think it's like th- there's a ton of things to change. He's not super. Um, hold on one second. He's. An- He's not super athletic. He plays a slow man's game, but we saw that happen with Trendon Watford last year. He was able to do it and deliver. So with, with, um, with uh, Jamie and Brakefield, I think his big thing is increasing that motor. It's interesting. They got a couple ga- – uh, they go through this week there at 2-1. and one. Like, it hasn't completely bottomed out yet. But 
I, at this point, when you're talking, like if you're in that locker room and you're in that building, you get a two in one week, you have all realistic postseason aspirations out the door. What is keeping them motivated and keeping them like together? Like, what are you playing for at this point when you're on a team like this? Well, I think from a program standpoint and these coaches, it's, it's really having these young kids see the vision of what this could be if, if you add pieces, uh, getting some people some playing time that, that, that have it. But look, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, there's a, lot, there's a lot of teams out there that know at this point in the season that the NIT or the NCAA tournament is out of the question. And I think for this group, the incentive is tasting winning, right? You've gotten popped in the mouth a lot this year, and it's just tasting success. Super important for these young guys as well. Um, I've told you losing is never good. We don't want this to happen to the program. But I think all the different game types and situations that this team's had this year being whatever it is, 10 and 10, is really good for these young guys, learning how to handle that, playing close games, playing games where you're getting your ass kicked, et cetera. So I do think there's some benefit of that going forward. Glad you went there from tasting winning, kind of tasting success for the young dudes. Because when you look at this, I always try to put this in a big picture, just given the way the season's gone for Ole Miss. When you talk about Kermit and his future, assuming he's given beyond this year, because again, there's a lot of ways this could still go. You got a lot of basketball, a lot of season left. If he's given next year to kind of fix this and right the ship, is it as simple as building better around Ruffin, Morell? And for the sake of it, I'll just throw Brakefield in there because he still is a talented kid and he's still young. Like, simply put, is it as, like, is it as, as clear-cut as that? You got to build better around those dudes? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, you're building around them, but you got to go – you got to fill a lot of spots. and You got to go get some bucket getters, right? And, and, and Ruffin and Morell – are that um but you got to add pieces to that that are that similar profile players to them as well in my opinion this group's going to need at least four transfers in the offseason uh minimum i think i've told you this before but a lot of those freshmen that they have playing for them now i don't think are high major players um out of the high school guys i think those are guys that could get some minutes but like malik ewan for example uh top 100 kid if he's a starter day one for this group, I don't think that that's a good thing. So, you know, you really have to hit this portal hard. And as crazy as it sounds, I mean, I guess from a percentage standpoint, Lane's doing this with his roster. But, you know, I think you need four to six guys, which could be as much as half of your scholarship roster um, in, in the portal this year. So I think they need to do that. And, you know, another piece as well is – Going into next year, if you don't make the NIT or whatever the case may be this year, if you don't get some of those transfers that are some names that have performed at a P5 school or other schools, it's going to be hard to sell tickets too. So I think that's another piece of the transfer thing that they really got to capitalize on to make sure that there's some momentum going into next year for the program. I think you're dead on with that. And you talk about bucket getters. It's a lot of – it's per, biggest thing has got to be perimeter shooting, is it not? Because – I mean, even at times in the Florida game, in the game they won this week, SEC-wise, in the Arkansas game, it was the same thing. They're getting decent perimeter looks, most of the time it coming from three, and they just don't have dudes that can make them. And you've gotten a little bit of a scoring boost from Ruffin, but he doesn't really have much of a three-point shot at this point in his career. Yep. I would – okay, I guess we'll pivot there for a second. Do you think that's coming, or do you think he is what he is? Like, do you think they're going to try to add that to some extent, or is he largely a kind of a – Slasher is the wrong word, but kind of a get to the rim, get to the free throw line type of guy, or do you think he can add a shot? 
I think he can add a shot. Um, I, I think that he could develop that as well. I think the thing going into next year is you don't need to depend on that, right? right. You don't need to be able to defend on that. Where I do think this, this, the, the tough part about going into next year for this group, and some, some players actually don't care about this, which you know is interesting, but selling transfers on um, you know, kind of a program that may be on a warmer seat than others could be really hard for this group going forward and having to get four four to six of those um, is a lot. So I think, you know, if you can make that happen, that's going to be a huge deal. There's going to be some momentum. All right. Ticket sales may be good, all that stuff, but you got to capitalize on this transfer portal. And it ties the point back to when we first started about Ole Miss at the beginning. Hey, if you go six, if you went go six and 12 or, you know, seven, 11, whatever. Okay. That's one thing. If you kind of bottom out, it's going to be really hard to sell that to guys to come into the program as well. So although there's not postseason to play for, riding the ship ending, uh, you know, into March and ending the season from a transfer piece who you're adding, I think it's, it's important on that aspect. In terms of adding shooting, how easy or hard is that to do in the portal? Because you think high major college basketball, no matter where they are, whether it's a mid-major kid looking to go up a level or you adding another high major transfer, it seems like shooting to some degree is in abundance, but I also could be very wrong about that. Just from a strictly perimeter shooting, nothing else considered, how easy or hard is that to add? Like how, I guess, readily available is that? Well, I'll give you a, a point that is kind of all over the place off what you're talking about. There are shooters out there. Everybody wants shooters. I think a big thing that this program is struggling with right now um, that football just wrapped up with is NIL stuff. And, you know, being able to share that vision going into a transfer portal is a huge deal. And it's helping Lane right now, right? I mean, they were able to announce this and have some conversation, and they've got some guys that both regionally and nationally have NIL deals. Um, Ole Miss was behind from a football standpoint there, but now is in a really good spot. I think Ole Miss is really behind in um, NIL from a basketball standpoint right now. And for people out there that are trying to think of whether they want to do this for basketball or not, right now is probably a really hard time to be sold to put money into NIL. But here's the thing. It's just like with mutual funds and investments. It's kind of like dollar cost averaging. Even though the program's not, you know, at a great place right now, you have to consistently do that over time because you may battle a transfer who's looking at just NIL. If something were to happen to this coaching staff this year, next year, these coaches are looking at NIL situations at schools as one of the key things for why they want to go there. So for Ole Miss, this is probably over the past 15 years, you know, the second or third worst time to be asking for people with NIL. And I know we've got this fundraising thing going on for facilities as well, but I think it's going to be huge going forward. If this program can get out NIL stuff. And if you don't like the coaching staff right now, or you like them, it doesn't matter. It is going to increase the attractiveness of your program to new coaches, new players, whatever the case may be. Um, but I, I do think the program's behind on that right now. So I know that that, it's kind of connecting the dot to the, the shooter point that you made. But I think that's like a top three item for trying to go get shooters or best available transfers once March and April comes. It's a terrific point. And it's something I hadn't really thought about because when you think about this NIL stuff and, you know, I was, 
I would say made aware of kind of the main one that was being put together a couple months ago. And as it was coming together, I was like, oh, this would be really good. I'm impressed with them getting their shit together in that sense. You know, Ole Miss is usually a little bit more behind on most things when it comes to that. It's kind of why they're in the status tier they are in the SEC overall, whether people want to like to hear that or not. But to your point, I didn't even think about basketball for a second. Like when you think NIL, yep. you think football, because that's kind of what's stealing the headlines. But, you know, talk about the slimy recruiting process. Basketball puts football to shame. And now all of this is above board. And like you mentioned, it is got a problem for them. And I'm curious to see how that changes. And I didn't even really think about it, like you said, from the standpoint of, well, even if it doesn't go great for this staff and you're looking to hire a replacement coach, whether that's next year, two years from now, that affects the attractiveness of your job. And I, I, I hadn't thought about it from that standpoint. So, yeah. I yeah. And I mean, you, and you've got to think about it this way too. Like, um, you know, if, if George, like hypothetically, if this off season, Georgia, South Carolina and Ole Miss all opened up, right. And all the jobs opened up at the same time, historically, Georgia has probably a little bit of a leg up um, from an attractiveness standpoint. You saw Tom Crean kind of, Went straight for Georgia, really didn't look at Ole Miss a whole lot. But, you know, two, I think I would say two, these things are two out of the top three most important for these coaches right now is, hey, the NIL. So what if Ole Miss had a better NIL situation than South Carolina and Georgia? And then B is current roster, right? That used to not be as important because you could, you had four or five years to rebuild. But for these coaches now, they're on two or three year contracts. So being able to look at a current roster and say, hey, do I have three or four pieces that I can build around? I actually, you know, right now Ole Miss has more compared to South Carolina and Georgia. They actually may have a little bit of a leg up there. So for Ole Miss, it's super important to be able to differentiate yourself from some of these similar teams in the conference. And we've got a really unique opportunity right now to do that. Great stuff. They have a big week on the road coming up. They're at LSU. They're at Florida. And uh, you'll kind of get to see – this uh, this youngish team or this youngest core continue to grow up with two really tough tests. Awesome stuff as always, man. I really appreciate the time. Go get you some food and enjoy the second half of the slate game, and we will uh, catch up again next week. Sounds like a plan. See ya. And that was Bracken Ray. Really appreciate his insight as always. You know, it hasn't been a very interesting Ole Miss basketball season, but Bracken's brought it each and every week because we've kind of moved. To, you know, outside Ole Miss basketball stuff, college basketball as a whole, and uh, some NIL things that I found fascinating as well. So always appreciate his insight. A-plus stuff from Bracken as always. We'll be back later in the week, uh, back to our regularly scheduled three shows. Got a couple uh, irons in the fire as far as content goes, and then we'll have our Mailbag Friday show on Friday. So thanks for tuning in, making us a part of your day, and have a wonderful start to the week.